Well, as a freshman at Ohio University, I was a slave to sin. And it's not as though I was a Christian who was struggling with sin. No, I was enslaved to it. I literally could not and would not stop the drunkenness, the partying, the womanizing, and, and also, too, I mean, my, my belief in God was non-existent. I didn't really believe in God because I'd never seen him, I'd never experienced him, and, and honestly, I kind of felt sorry for those poor folks that did because it was something that was infringed upon them by their parents. And as far as the, the Christians, I'd met some on campus, and at first they were kind of intriguing just because of their joy. But not long after that, I was a bit annoyed by them. Uh, after a while, was kind of, um, kind of despised them, honestly. And uh, eventually, I think that gave birth to hatred. Just hated them. And then inexplicably and unexpectedly and honestly, it was instantaneously, on the night of December 31st, 2001, God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in my heart to give me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, when I was dead in my transgressions and sins, God, because of his great love for us and because, of his, because he is rich in mercy, he made me alive in Christ Jesus. And it is by grace that I was saved. And after that, I was filled with the most inexpressible and glorious joy. I mean, the moment that that happened, I fell deeply in love with Jesus Christ. It was the most amazing, wonderful moment of my life, unlike anything I had ever experienced. And from that point forward, everything changed. I, I literally, after that, I had the power then to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And as I began to read the Bible, I'd actually read the Bible before, but it was just words, it was so boring. And now all of a sudden I opened the Bible and I couldn't get enough of it. There was such hunger for God's word. I Desired, I couldn't get enough of it. And those Christians I had hated, well, a lot of them became my best friends. And there was such a zeal for the Lord. Afterwards, I had such a passion to tell others about Jesus that I actually joined a fraternity to reach out to guys who were just like me, to share Jesus with them, to see that transformation to happen in their lives. There was such an excitement for Christ. And so I share my testimony this morning, and I share that with you for two reasons. One, I think because everyone here who has been born again can probably relate to that excitement and that joy when they first believe. And second, I share that because it is the zealous works for the Lord that we did when we first believed that is the remedy to the dying church in our text this morning. Again, it is the zealous works for the Lord that we do when we first believe that is the remedy to the dying church that is in our text this morning. So if you could, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7.
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the commendation that the church at Ephesus received from Jesus was pretty impressive, wasn't it? They worked hard in the faith. They persevered through hardships. They knew their Bibles well. They had precise theological definitions. It appears as though they were student, diligent students of the word. They worked hard on defending the faith apologetically. They refuted false doctrine. They were steadfast and immovable in their theological convictions, we can see here. And they took the purity of the church very seriously. They even practiced church discipline because they boldly rebuked false teachers and fearlessly condemned wickedness. So when you look at the commendation from Jesus, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, it's impressive. In fact, as you hear that, as you read that, my goodness, they would be at the top of the list in the Nine Marks Church search, right? The Nine Marks Church search or the Gospel Coalition Church search, what a lot of us have used to actually find a church that we think is healthy. Wow, this is a good one, right? And yet, a church like this could be in danger of losing it all. In fact, they could be on the very precipice of destroying their witness and possibly even their own faith. So, Jesus, and we see this for Jesus' rebuke in Revelation 2, 1 through 3. Again, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So the Ephesian believers had lost sight of what caused them to form their church in the first place. They had forgotten the deep-seated, all-satisfying love of Christ. And let us not think that we're exempt from that either. We too have a high view of God's word. We study it diligently. We teach it faithfully. We, we refute those who oppose it. But also, too, according to this text, we too could be vulnerable to such trouble. And the remedy here, the remedy to this danger, according to verse 4, is what? It is to embrace the love we had at first and to remember how far we have fallen and to repent and do the things we did at first. So the church at Ephesus is exhorted by Jesus to remember the love they had at first. They were to remember the days early on in their walk. And so, man, wouldn't that be helpful 
if we had an account, maybe even a first-hand account of what the believers were like in Ephesus when they, were, when they first believed? And that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Well, the, the reality is we do have that, and it's in Acts chapter 19. What I'd like us to do then is to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19, and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. And again, we're doing that because the remedy to this church's problem and to the, the rebuke that Jesus gives them is to remember the early days in their faith, to go back to that love they had at first, and to do the things they did when they first believed. Now, as you're turning to Acts chapter 19, let me give you kind of a brief idea as far as what the historical context was. So you have the Apostle Paul, and he goes on three missionary journeys. Now, on his third missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus. And he stays there three years, and he preaches, and he teaches, and he labors among the Ephesians. And then a few years after that, he writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. He writes the letter to Ephesians. We read from it earlier this morning. And then about 30 to 40 years later, we have the Apostle John writing the account of Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. So in Acts 19... I'd like to point out specifically four main points that flow sequentially in the chapter. And they are, one, that these believers, these Ephesians, that they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Two, they were devoted to the teaching of the Word. Three, they experienced supernatural healings and exorcisms. And four, they confessed their sins and forsook their idols. So beginning in 19, beginning at the, the beginning of the chapter, they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these first believers in Ephesus were 12 men who were disciples of whom? They were disciples of John the Baptist. And so they had received the baptism of John the Baptist, but they had not heard of the Holy Spirit. So they had heard in part the gospel, but they hadn't heard the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in many ways, they were like Apollos before them in chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Apollos, he too had heard the teaching of John the Baptist. So he'd heard about a coming Messiah, but he hadn't heard about, more than like, he hadn't heard about the, re the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to the believers in Ephesus in, in chapter 19, it wasn't as though what we're seeing here is some kind of two-tier conversion, as though they, they believed in Jesus and they were Christians from the preaching of the, from John the Baptist, and then later they're fully converted by the preaching of Paul and they receive the Holy Spirit. So it's not some kind of two-tier conversion, nor do I think it's some kind of second baptism in the Holy Spirit. What I believe they received is the initial baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is what we all receive when we believe in Jesus Christ. And that is when you believe, the Holy Spirit makes you alive. The Holy Spirit comes in, and we use this word regeneration, comes and changes your heart, transforms you, gives you the faith to believe and to receive this gift of salvation, which is from God. And so they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were made new creations in Christ. Again, first, the church at Ephesus were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and two, which is our second point, 
they were devoted to the teaching of the word. In verse 9, we see that Paul took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And this verse doesn't mean that, that everyone in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord just through Paul and his ministry in Ephesus. What I think this means, and, and I'm, I'm getting this from the book of Colossians, is that those who were hearing the word were going back to their hometowns in different provinces of Asia, and they were sharing the gospel. And one of those, were, one of those such people were Epaphras. And so Epaphras heard the gospel in Ephesus, probably through the, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, through Paul's preaching and teaching there. He goes back home, and he plants the church in Colossae. See, when you read Colossians, you know from, from the text itself that Paul actually never went to Colossians, to Colossae. So it was, it was planted by Epaphras, and more than likely, a church at Hierapolis and a church at Laodicea was probably planted by Epaphras too. So we see here, my point is, that they, of course, they heard the word of the Lord. They, they, they received it daily through Paul's preaching and teaching, but they weren't just hearers of the word, as James says, but they were also doers of the word. They took what they heard and, the, and, and what they experienced, and then they, they shared it with others. And notice also that these Ephesian believers met once a week for two hours on a Sunday, and that was it. No, that is not the case. In fact, we, he, we see here in verse 9, that the Ephesians heard the word of the Lord daily in the hall of Tyrannus. There was a hunger, an excitement, and a delight in the word. They couldn't wait a whole week to hear another sermon or to hear some more teaching. They wanted to hear it daily. And they, couldn't, they just couldn't get enough of it. And I think we see similar things with the early believers in Jerusalem. In Acts 2.46, after the Holy Spirit's outpouring... Every day, verse 46 says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And they were meeting in the temple courts and praising God, hearing the word taught. So at the beginning, the believers at Ephesus were meeting daily to hear the word. And yet just 40 years later, as we come to the condition of this church in Revelation 2, nominalism has set in. The Bible doesn't seem very interesting to them anymore. Maybe they've already heard that. They've read that. They, they know that doctrine. It's lost its luster. It's, it's no longer exciting to them. And apathy has begun to set in. And so the Lord Jesus says to them, repent. You have forsaken your first love. Do the things you did at first. This early church was devoted to fellowship and they met together daily. This is the, the early church in Jerusalem, met together daily in the temple courts. And similarly, these Ephesians were meeting daily to hear the preaching of Paul. And I think there's something that we can, we can take from this. And that is... Our meeting times, of course, we've got Sunday morning and we have uh, shepherd groups. And so let this be an encouragement to us to make that a priority. 
Now, I understand that, that there are times when it's just not possible. I get that. We've been there. Totally understand that. You have to work late. The kids are sick. You're out of town. We've all been there. I totally understand that. But I think there might be a little more to this than we admit. I mean, we're, we're always able to make time for things we prioritize. So we're able to make that OSU football game. We're able to make the kids' athletic events. We're able to make the practices. Yet fellowship with God's people, unfortunately, many times is kind of at the bottom of the list. It's not the top of the priority list. And I don't think that should be so. And for many of you, if you're craving fellowship, if you're craving edification from other believers and encouragement in the faith, and if you're consistently missing Sunday mornings in shepherd group, then it's, it's kind of hard to kind of help you with that dilemma. I mean, if anything, I think that's a good starting place. Moving on from Acts 19, we know that in the beginning, these believers were, one, they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And two, they were devoted to the teaching of the Word. And now point three, they experienced supernatural healings and exorcisms. We read in chapter 19, verse 11. Take a look there with me. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. The Ephesian believers witnessed firsthand the miraculous power of God. And so let's not be so conservative and so cautious with the Holy Spirit that we kind of brush these texts aside. Maybe we're even a little embarrassed by them. In Acts 5, verse 15, so many people were getting healed by the ministry of Peter that they quote, this verse 15, quote, they carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats. Then as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And according to verse 16, they were all healed. So we don't want our theological systems to inhibit us from embracing and obeying and standing on every word that is in Scripture. And, and I understand that sometimes I think there's a tendency to be reactionary to some of the disorder some of the chaos and honestly some of the plain foolishness that can be present in certain charismatic churches. But again, I don't want us to lose sight of every word that is in Scripture. I don't want us to ever skip over passages, even if it makes us a little uncomfortable. I don't want us to lose sight of a verse like 1 Corinthians 14.1, to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In verse 39 of that same chapter, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Let's not be scared of these things, but let us embrace every word that is in Scripture. It was about five or six years ago. I'm in, I'm in medical sales and I was, I was training and I was in the operating room and I came across and met a surgical scrub tech. And on the side, he was also a part-time Pentecostal pastor. And he after getting to know him, he shared with me that it had just been a year since his 16-year-old son was diagnosed with cancer. And they spent a lot of time at Children's Maine, 
as he was receiving treatments, getting updates on his diagnosis, his prognosis. And what he told me was they came across many other families that had children that were very sick. He said the most bizarre thing happened. He didn't use that word. He actually, he didn't think it was bizarre probably, but to me it was. He said they began to get together with uh, some of these families they had met uh, to pray for them, to pray over their children. And he said they saw children healed. They saw kids completely healed, clean bill of health, up and walking out of the hospital with their families. And he watched his 16-year-old son die of cancer. And he had, he had tears in his eyes as he shared that with me. He said his son was just sold out for the Lord, loved Jesus. Hands were, were raised. He would have worship music, music playing in his, in his hospital room. But again, so it is, it is God who heals. Clearly, if they were the ones with the power to heal, he would have healed his son. But it's God who does it. And he still does it. Now, if you think Paul's handkerchief was strange, or maybe the story of, of Peter and the, his shadow falling on those and healing those, it gets a little more weird. During Paul's time in Ephesus, some Jews went around driving out demons through invoking the name of Jesus. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit, the evil spirit jumped on them, or I'm sorry, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's strange. That's a weird, isolated story. Why on earth would Luke record that? Well, I think Luke recorded that because that event was actually a turning point for the church at Ephesus. This exorcism, or I guess this botched exorcism, we should say, awakened a revival in Ephesus. Which leads us to our fourth point, they confessed their sins and forsook their idols. In verse 17 we read, when this, that is that botched exorcism, became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. You hear that? After this happened, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to about 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. These, Ephesian elders, these Ephesians openly confessed their evil deeds. And there's a point of application here for us too. Are we regularly confessing our sins before the Lord? Are we seeking forgiveness and repentance? Further still, do we have a believer that's in our life that we can regularly go to for confession and accountability? If you don't have that, 
you need to seek it out. Find a brother or sister in Christ whom you trust and go to them for this confession and accountability and do this regularly. And I think this is especially urgent in our contemporary culture, specifically due to the ubiquity and the accessibility of pornography. We must take this sin very seriously. The statistics are so discouraging, mind-boggling. According to the Barna Research Group, 79% of men ages 18 to 30 look at pornography regularly, and 67% of men ages 31 to 49. And the terrifying thing is that these statistics among Christians are virtually the same. This sin, that sin, will corrupt your soul, ruin your life, and left unchecked, it will send you to hell. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose your eye or to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Satan is using this sin to destroy a generation. And Satan is the great tempter, and he is the great accuser. He lures people into it, and then he condemns them and crushes them afterwards. And right now, some of you may be feeling those accusations. And I want you to know that there is forgiveness in the cross. That Jesus Christ died for that. And that you can be healed, you can be made clean if you go to Jesus in faith. If like the Ephesians, you confess your evil deeds, you repent, you cut off the arm of pride, and you go to a trusted brother in Christ for help. And they will help you fight for your soul. After an investigation upon what the Ephesian believers did when they first believed from the book of Acts, we see, one, that they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Two, they were devoted to the teaching of the Word. Three, they experienced supernatural healings and exorcisms, which resulted in Jesus' name being held in high honor. And four, they confessed their sins and forsook their idols, which resulted in the Word of the Lord spreading widely and growing in power. So now let us circle back around to Jesus' rebuke in Revelation 2.4. Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. We know that in Acts 19, these Ephesian believers were in love with Christ. His name was held in high honor. His word was spreading widely and growing in power. Yet somewhere along the lines between this initial belief and 40, 30 to 40 years later, something had gone awry. They'd gotten off course. And it appears as though when you, when you, when you look at the commendation that they were theologically heady, but they had no heart. 
my guess is that you go into their church and it felt more like a, like a dry kind of classroom environment. That they were as dead as a doornail. That they, they had actually missed the forest for the trees. Which is the first and greatest commandment. Which is what? Remember, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second... And it is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. First and foremost, the Ephesians had forsaken their first love. They had forsaken their love for God and a love for his people. And it's ironic, isn't it, that a few years after the church was planted, Paul follows up with them in a letter. And in Ephesians three sixteen through 18, his prayer for them was love. He prayed that out of his, that is God the Father's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of God's people to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of God. Paul prayed for power, for Holy Spirit-enabled power, for them to grasp the love of Christ, a love that surpasses knowledge. Because they were a church that had plenty of knowledge, but they had lost the power. They had lost the love. They had quenched the Holy Spirit. And Paul prays that they would be filled to the full measure of God. Now, what, what exactly does that mean to be full of God? Well, I think it's kind of simple. In the same way, if someone is full of anger, they're what? I mean, they're, they're controlled by anger. And so someone who is full of God is someone who is in complete control, is con- completely controlled by God. And when that happens, when you're full of God, you're full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And who doesn't want to be a part of a church like that? And when you're full of the love of Christ, you don't have to force yourself to go to church. You don't have to force yourself to go to a small group or to share Jesus with a coworker. When your cup is filled to the brim with the love of Christ, it begins just to to overflow into every realm of your life. So yes, doctrine is important, absolutely. And theological precision is very important. Don't miss that. Don't hear me saying anything. Don't hear me saying anything against that. But let's not forget that biblical Christianity is also experiential. Paul didn't dichotomize the two. To him, his doctrine was unmistakably experiential. Toward the end of the most deep and rich theological letters ever written in Romans, the Apostle Paul, he can't help but to burst with praise in chapter 11. He declares, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever been given to God? 
that God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, he says. And often in Paul's writings, he can't help but to just interrupt himself with doxology, with praise to God. His heart was full of God. It wasn't just an intellectual exercise for the Apostle Paul. It was a heartwarming, full-body experience. And it needs to be that way for us too. When Jesus unpacked the scriptures, you remember this? So he's, he's resurrected. He comes across a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Who he is is hidden from them. And as they're walking, the, the passage in Luke says that from beginning, uh, from the teaching of Moses, he walks in the Psalms and the prophets, he walks through the scriptures and reveals to them that the Christ, uh, you know, that the Messiah is the Christ. And to hear these things, he unpacks the word. And then afterwards, the response of, of these disciples was, well, my goodness, wasn't that a clear and coherent doctrinal exposition? No. Do you remember what they say? Did our hearts not burn within us? That's what I want for us. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. And that's what I've been praying for. Paul says in Romans 12, 11, to never be lacking in zeal, but with spiritual fervor, serve the Lord. It's not a suggestion or an ideal. This is a command. And I'm confident that myself included, many of us, we need more zeal, more passion for Jesus. And if you remember when the Ephesians, when they first believed, if you remember, I remember when I first believed, when you first believed, do you remember that excitement, that joy? What a shame that has become accepted in our day and age in the church to say, well, to a new believer, okay, that's great. Yeah, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but it'll wear off. It does for all of us. It'll happen. No, no, that, that should not be, that should not be the case. And it shouldn't be because God's word tells us we want to never be lacking in zeal. With spiritual fervor to serve the Lord, we want our hearts to burn with doctrine. And so our emotions and our feelings and our affections, we want those to soar for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want us to be like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. I fear that oftentimes I'm a lot like them. And maybe we're a lot like them. I want us to experience the love of Christ. I want us to feel it. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Hear that? Taste it. See it. Psalm 63, 3, I want our lips to glorify him because his love is better than life. Did you catch that? The answer to our apathy and the answer to someone's addiction to pornography is that a greater pleasure is found in Christ. His love is better than money, prestige, honor, nice houses, expensive cars, and Ivy League education, his love is better than sex. It's better than anything. One of the Puritans, he's actually a Scottish preacher, Thomas Chalmers, 
kind of brought that very point to life in a book he wrote called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Of a new affection. The very idea to, to replace one pleasure, the answer to, to one pleasure, or maybe a worldly pleasure, is to replace it with a superior one. And we don't have to guess as to what that superior pleasure is. It is found in Jesus. Psalm 1611, You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 9014, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy all the days of our life. Psalm 103, He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And Philippians 3.8, a favorite of mine, I consider, the Apostle Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. And in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. He wanted his pleasure. He wanted his joy. He knew it could only be found in one place and that was Christ Jesus. We need experiential religion. And this is not some new idea of mine. Listen to the words of Maurice Roberts who is, by the way, by no means some charismatic Pentecostal. This guy is the editor, the former editor of The Banner of Truth. Very conservative and reformed publisher. He says, Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul and they promote sanctification. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought, from the Spirit of God. The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. By the enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of a believer, we mean an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given in us. That's a quote, Romans 5.5. 5. That's in the Bible. Because the Lord has made himself accessible to us in the means of grace. It is our duty and privilege to seek this experience from him in these means till we are made the joyful partakers of it. And Christian history is just saturated with accounts of saints experiencing this intimate love with God. This love of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. If you want to read about a man who was just consumed with this kind of passion and zeal and experiential love for Christ, pick up St. Augustine, his confessions. It's filled with this kind of language. He was a fourth century pastor and he was enslaved to lust before finally getting radically converted in his early 30s. He was almost mystical in his white-hot love for God. 
He wrote, Lord, bring me to a sweetness surpassing all the seductive delights that I once pursued. Enable me to love you with all my strength that I may clasp your hand with my heart. You, Lord, are my king and my God. He says, who do I love when I love my God? Thomas Aquinas was a spiritual giant and theologian in the 12th century. Toward the end of his life, he had such a profound encounter with the living God that he stopped writing. And he had written volumes upon volumes. And he was in the midst of finishing and completing his magnum opus, the, the Summa Theologica. It was nearly complete. And then he had this encounter with the living God. And afterward, he refused to write ever again. He put down the pen, never wrote another word till his death. Blaise Pascal, a Frenchman from the 17th century, had a paper stitched inside his paper stitch inside his shirt, and it was found upon his death. And on it was written a day and an hour upon which he most experienced the grace of God. It lasted for two hours, and the words he used to describe it was fire. And he went on to add joy, 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 tears of joy. And subsequently, he retired from the academic world of mathematics and he joined full-time ministry, and he wrote some great works. And, and I mention that just because I think, I think we ought to know something like that. And in fact, many of the Puritans also had deep encounters with the living God. During private devotion, men such as John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Richard Sibbs, and perhaps most profound was the encounter that Sarah Edwards, wife of Jonathan Edwards, had with the Lord. This is quoting Jonathan Edwards, who wrote down her account. She spoke of a delightful sense of the immediate presence and love of God that was so near and so real that I seemed scarcely conscious, conscious of anything else. Then I was, she said, entirely swallowed up in God as my only portion, and his honor and glory was the object of my supreme desire and delight. She particularly recalls, this is the Edwards, particularly recalls one encounter with God's love that was, quote, was worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed in my, in my whole life put together. It was pure delight which fed and satisfied the soul. It was pleasure without the least sting or any interruption. It was sweetness which my soul was lost in. It seemed to be all that my feeble frame could sustain of the fullness of joy which is felt by those who behold the face of Christ and share in his love in the heavenly world. I want us to pursue that. So in closing with a few words of application, I want us to seek the Lord. I want us to seek his face. If you were just to type in, in, in kind of a, a Bible search engine, the word seek, it's going to come up hundreds of times. These exhortations from the psalmist especially to seek God. George Mueller, he was a great man of the 1800s who saved untold hundreds, maybe thousands of 
of children and started an orphanage. He said that it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. So seek the Lord. Get alone with the Lord. And we see often in the life of Jesus that he withdrew to lonely places to pray. And so that, that time of getting alone with the Lord can be very instrumental to seek his face. Three, to be committed to God's word and his people. We saw this earlier um, as the example from the Ephesians when they first believed in Acts 19. And lastly, yes, doctrine is good. Studying the word is of paramount importance. But let us not lose sight of an unwavering love for Jesus and for others. That's the most important thing. We don't have to guess. And if you do that passionately, then everything else will fall into place. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word to the church at Ephesus. And God, I, I pray that we too, God, would not forsake our first love. Lord, I, I pray that uh, your spirit would uh, move in our hearts, in our minds. God, that you would really stir us to um, love Christ deeply and to love others and to love each other deeply as well. Lord, I pray that you would uh, work in and through us, not, not just right now, but in the long haul. Tomorrow, this week, the week after, months after, years after, may we be a church that first and foremost is not just marked by doctrine and theological precision, but God, it is a church that is marked by love. And Paul says, Lord, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Oh, and to him be glory in the church. So God, would you be willing to do that for us? And would you be glorified in this church? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.